0: Friend, welcome to Job with Julie. I'm Julie Slattery, and let me remind you that Job with Julie is a listener-supported podcast. It's an outreach of the ministry authentic intimacy. Well, you know, a very common argument among Christians is some contention around the idea of whether you are egalitarian or complementarian. Let me explain that just a little bit. Egalitarians come from the point of view that men and women are called to have the same type of roles in and neither is the leader over the other, whether that's in marriage or in the church context. Now, complementarians come from the point of view that the role of women is more of a complement to men, a support to men, and therefore not to be leader over men or alongside men, particularly, again, in the family and church context. Now, friends, this is a decades-long discussion, and very often people are asked to pick a side My guest today is Dr. Michelle Lee Barnwell, and she is the author of a book called Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian, and she talks about what we might be missing when we look at gender roles and the relationship between the genders in both marriage and in the church as a whole. Michelle holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame. She is an esteemed theologian and author and serves as an affiliate professor of New Testament at Biola University. As you're going to hear, she is both highly intellectual and gospel-centered in her approach and understanding of this topic. Well, friend, this is a great episode for you to listen to as you consider for yourself gender roles in the church, gender roles in your marriage, and why God created man and women in the first place. Let's head to the coffee shop for my conversation with Dr. Michelle Lee Barnwell. Well, Michelle, I have been looking forward to this conversation ever since I first heard about your book neither complementarian nor egalitarian. And the reason why was because as soon as I heard that title, I'm like, that's me. That's what I tell people all the time when they ask me, you know, which side do you identify with? And I finally found somebody else who (laughs) would say that same thing. And you've written just a, a brilliant book on why. And so, you know, I'll say this is a topic that We don't often cover here on Job with Julie because it's so divisive and we have people in our listening audience and in our community who feel strongly about one side or the other. And I hate stirring up additional division or controversy when it's unneeded, but it is such an important topic. So I'm looking forward to the opportunity to talk about it with really a more kingdom perspective, which is the heart of your book. So thank you for writing this book and then being willing to have a discussion with me about it.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And I'm looking forward to our conversation too.
0: Yeah. Well, before we dive in, some people will be unfamiliar with those two terms, complementarian and egalitarian. So for those who might not be aware of what those mean, or even just need a refresher, how would you describe what they mean? I guess
1: I would say that uh, the terms describe one's position in terms of the roles of men and women in the church. And right now, in particular in evangelicalism, these are seen as kind of sort of the two primary positions. For complementarians, probably their main idea is this idea that men have a particular authority and leadership role in the home and in the church, whereas egalitarians on the other side would say that all positions are open to women. There is no particular authority leadership role for men in the church and then in the home that there's mutual shared decision making. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it revolves around these ideas of, you know, is there a particular leadership, you know, authority that is given to men?
0: Yeah. Well, there is a high level of conversation going on around these. There always has been in theological circles and they. And we'll talk about Paul's letters and what that means and Genesis and the fall and what all that means. And for most people, they're not interested in kind of those deep theological debates. What they really want to know is the practical of, Mm -hmm. hey, I've got to make a decision about what church I'm going to attend. And I need to know whether or not I'm comfortable biblically with women in ministry and at what level or practically within marriage. If you are married, you have to make decisions about how you navigate conflict, decisions, this idea of submission. So this is not just for people kind of in the ivory tower discussing it. It really impacts some of the real life decisions that we make.
1: Right. That's so important, too, because as you said, we just don't want to leave it in terms of this sort of theory. But and, and that was part of the impetus for writing the book, because I was thinking, like, how does this impact you know, both men and women in the church, how does this impact the way that we relate to, you know, one another? And as I looked at the two positions, feeling like, as I looked at the text and maybe seeing how things are worked out, that there were things that I did like or agreed with both, but there are other things that made me uncomfortable. And Mm -hmm. I will say some of it was in terms of how I might see it, you know, being worked out in the church. And I might say kind of the larger issue, which doesn't always come up because so much of the debate revolves around, you know, sort of like who's in charge in that regard but really concerned concern in terms of how are we relating to one another? Yeah. You know, are we relating to one another with grace and love, where it seems that because of this issue, as you, you know, mentioned, that it really becomes a battle. And I think sometimes it ends up sort of pitting men and women against you know, one another. I understand it's a big concern, but I do get concerned in terms of how it's you know, impacting the church.
0: Yeah. And I've been on my own journey with this, particularly, well, really in in both marriage and ministry, because in marriage, I write and teach a lot about marriage. And so really needing to understand God's heart for this. And then in ministry, being a woman in ministry, I have very practical questions I need to answer. Like when a church asks me to come and preach on Sunday, what do I do with that? There's some recent comments made by a well-known theologian that said, Females shouldn't lead parachurch ministries. Well, I'm leading a parachurch ministry. Yeah. So for me, this has been a journey of really seeking the Lord. And when I identify with I'm neither complimentarian or egalitarian, it's not a like just give me a pass, like I don't want to take a side. It's kind of what you're saying there that well, first of all, those two words from my understanding don't appear in scripture, right? Like it's right. Not, like we've kind of made these words up. Yes. So let me just ask: Is it possible to hold intention the fact that maybe scripture isn't exactly one way or the other in terms of how we understand these things?
1: Well, I'll say that sort of where I've come to is that you know part of what maybe want to explore is this: is that the sort of dissatisfaction with both positions. In particular, what made me uncomfortable about this was framing it in terms of these particular issues of authority leadership rights and equality and as much as i understand that those are important issues and there is definitely that practical aspect because as a church a church has to make a decision i was also thinking that it might need a bit of reframing because i'm not sure those are the key issues that we see in scripture particularly when issues such as authority and rights are actually redefined in a kingdom context You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. Jesus talks about, you know, in Matthew 20, the idea that, you know, the Gentiles are the ones who have authority and they lord it over, you know, others. But actually, if you want to be great, you have to be the servant or the slave. Or in Philippians Mm -hmm. 2, Paul talks about, you know, Jesus would have the rights of being equal to God. But what he does is he actually doesn't use them in order to humble himself and die for our sake. And so part of, you know, my, I guess, intent in, in the book is to be able to think about, Rather than just focusing on, you know, what can women do or what can women you know, not do in this regard, how do we look at things? Because I do think that how we look at things will, you know, sort of frame in a sense what the outcome is, in a sense, whether you subscribe to the complementarian or the egalitarian position. And maybe just to give you one example, you know, I think the complementarians, you know, have a pretty strong stance, depending on where you are, because there's a spectrum you know, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, here's what women can do and here's what women, you know, cannot do. So they have that divide. But I, I might challenge the complementarians in the sense that like, okay, I understand, you know, your core concerns, I understand this position, but is it also possible that for, you know, some people, because there is a range, you've made that distinction too strongly. Have you mm-hmm. have you done it too much? Or I might sort of challenge the egalitarians, you know, the sort of, the sense of, well, all positions are open to women. But have you thought enough about what the differences are between what men and women and those, mm-hmm. I think might be some of the questions that I think would apply to maybe your position. You know, can you lead a church ministry? It might involve, well, you know, maybe yes. And, you know, in your position and then, but then also what would that look like?
0: So if right. that makes sense. Right. No, it does. As I was reading your book, you know, something that came to mind and you probably even said this somewhere in the book, but we're really perhaps asking the wrong questions. So I think about this situation when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they they bring up this hypothetical situation of a man who's been married to all these different women and says, well, who will he be married to in the kingdom of God? And Jesus Mm -hmm. said, you're missing the whole point because you don't understand the scriptures Mm -hmm. and you don't understand the power of God. And uh, that's kind of a lot of times where I end up landing in this is, we may be asking the wrong question. And I think that's what your book is really getting to, that what God does in us is he transforms our spirit and he transforms even our understanding of what authority is and what power is. And some of the questions we're asking are kind of based on a worldly assumption of what authority and power are instead of having those definitions changed by the life of Jesus.
1: And I think that's really a, a critical observation there. You know, if I were to think something about, to me, one of the obvious things would be, you know, ideas of authority and leadership. And you know, First Peter five, he talks about, you know, here are the elders and they are called to oversee the congregation. But then he also goes on to say, well, and they're to be examples of the flock. And then you think, well, what are in First Peter? What is the example that he's talking about? Well, in First Peter, it's the example of suffering. <laughs> I yeah. mean, First Peter talks so much about being willing to suffer as Christ suffered. And here he's talking about the elders being able to be an example, you know, to the flock as they are overseeing. So I would think if you think about, let's say authority, leadership in that context, you know, that, you know, sort of being this example, being willing to suffer, you know, like Christ did looks very different than if it's authority. It's like, oh, well, I have power and I can do this. And, you know, people have to, you know, follow me in that regard. So that's why I think that, you know, these categories are here. They are important. These are, you know, definite practical decisions that churches and organizations need to make. But like you said, they might look differently, you know, Mm -hmm. when we see them in this, you know, larger context.
0: Mm -hmm. And so first we have to wrestle with the larger questions of how does Jesus redefine authority, Mm -hmm. the concept of submission, like all these words that we're playing around with. If we don't understand how Jesus reframed all those for us, then we're going to come to the wrong conclusions regardless of which side we end up on. So, yeah, let me get your thoughts on this. One of the things that I've kind of been convicted of on my own journey is that I don't like the word roles. I used to use the word roles, like what is a woman's role in the church? What is a woman's or man's role in marriage? And the more I've studied this and prayed through it, the less I like those words because where I feel like God is really leading me is what is my spirit? Like what is the spirit of woman in ministry? What is the spirit of me as a wife? What is the spirit of a man in ministry? And what is maybe the spirit of a man uniquely called to do differently than a woman would do? So I don't know. What is your thought of that?
1: I really like the way that you put it, because I think one of the limitations of role and, you know, we're practical, so we want to know, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. so we want to talk about roles. But to me, I think when you're talking about roles, especially so exclusively in that regard, you're really missing, I think, as you're getting at the relational aspect, Mm -hmm. you know, there's so much in scripture about being one, Mm -hmm. about building up one another. And I think that it's, you know, when it focuses so much on roles, it becomes, okay, here's my slot and here's your slot but we're really not talking about this idea of how do we love one another? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? How do we, you know, sort of build these relationships? How do we edify, you know, one another? And I think if you just look at what's happening in the world today, that so much is what is needed. And that's so much, I think, what the church can bring, you know, to this conversation. How are men and women to relate to one another? How do they build up one another? How do they love one another? Because, you know, as I look at Genesis, you know, Genesis th- talks so much about this idea of, you know, this creation of the first male, the first female, and their relationship, and then the breaking down of their relationship. Mm-hmm. And then I think when you look through the rest of the Scripture, you just see the tragedy of, you know, men and women against one another, men and women not understanding, men and women, you know, abusing one another. But then when you get to the New Testament, particularly in Revelation, is a sort of vision of, you know, living together like God intended us you know, Mm -hmm. to live. And that really is something I don't think that can be captured if we are really just kind of limiting ourselves to talking about, oh, this is men's roles, and this is women's roles.
0: Yeah, which is why I feel like probably both of us came to the conclusion that you could be living out these roles, either from an egalitarian or complementarian perspective, and we're not advancing the kingdom of God, because the heart hasn't been impacted. So again, I just, I can't recommend this book enough. And I I do get asked this question often from other leaders, like, where are you on this? What resources do you recommend? So this is going to be my go-to resource from now on. Let me ask you to explain something that I thought was really helpful in me understanding kind of where we've gotten, particularly with the egalitarian perspective. You explain the difference between first wave feminism and second wave feminism and how that's been playing out just in Christian community and the churches, and I'd never heard this before. So can you explain the difference between the emphases on those two movements?
1: Yeah, in in first wave feminism is one that occurred at the turn of the 20th century, around the early 1900s. And to me, it was very fascinating to read because I had never really heard about this before. Uh, But basically, what you have is a movement of women where really, in a sense, women were seen as the spiritual leaders of the church. And they took the lead in terms of, you know, missions and, you know, temperance movements. But really what was fascinating about that movement is because a lot of sort of the uh, the background to this, sort of the impetus for this, came from a Victorian idea that women were the more virtuous, you know, creature. You know, mm-hmm. men were corrupted because they were working in the world. They were in industry. They were in banking. And so they've been corrupted, whereas women, according to this sort of this more, Victorian notion were more domestic, were more domestic and virtuous in that sense. And so they were seen as sort of if there was going to be, you know, change in society that needed to be done, it's going to be by the woman. And so they were seen as leading these movements. And so they took a lot of, you would know, say, leadership roles, you know, in terms of doing this and really just a sense that they were seen as the spiritual leaders, you know, in this. Which mm. I always thought was kind of fascinating because yeah. ultimately still the men were the authorities, but the women were seen as you know, really important for, you know, the spiritual development of the church, you know, and the home. And so what was interesting about this first wave feminism is because the sort of one, it was actually a lot of it came from the church, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of this impetus. And it was led to things such as, you know, the woman's right to vote, and, you know, things like that. But one of the things that was very interesting in terms of even the argument for the woman's right to vote, is they didn't argue from rights, a couple of the women did, but that didn't gain any traction, because at that period, because there was so much corporate emphasis that was seen as being sort of a selfish perspective. You know, it's not about my rights. It's the, the point is that, you know, so women are to be the mothers of the world in the sense. So if they're the more virtuous ones, they have an actually an obligation to go out to the world and impact the world. And even sort of the right to vote was seen as, well, if women are more virtuous and we need to let them vote because they're going to be voting in a virtuous way. Mm. And so that was, fascinating to me in that regard is then when you get to, um, So second wave feminism, which sort of starts with um, Betty Friedan's Mystique*, you know, and, and in terms of like the 60s and 70s, a little bit of a backlash to, you know, the 50s, is there the argument for rights does take hold. And one of the reasons why it does take hold now is because you have the civil rights movement and because the civil rights movement is accepted, then, you know, now this is, you know, is more acceptable, too. And so that becomes kind of a dominant theme of second wave feminism. And the one thing that I tried to point out in my book is I'm not saying that it's necessarily a bad thing. You know, some people, you know, sometimes people argue, oh, well, you know, there are these ties to the feminist movement, therefore it must be bad. Well, you know, actually it's not necessarily. But to me, what I, I pointed out in the book was really more interesting in that book, in this trajectory, is a shift from a corporate perspective. You know, women were actually compelled to go out into the world and, you know, influence these movements because they had an obligation To better society. And then, you know, in the 50s, it becomes a little bit more centered in the family. And then by the time you get to the 60s and 70s, it's about individual rights. So it's not, I mean, because I, you know, want to emphasize rights are a good thing. But what you do see is an increasingly individualistic focus. And Mm -hmm. to me, the danger of focusing on something like rights is it is individualistic. It's my rights and it's good. I mean, we have to do that. But I just thought that in a kingdom perspective, there's something that's even greater than my rights because what you have Christ is he had his rights and then he's willing to not use them. Mm-hmm. And so to just focus on rights and stop there, I think can do some damage to us in terms of we focus on ourselves and not upon God and his kingdom.
0: Boy, Michelle, I think it's so important for us to understand that bigger picture of this. America and Western culture has become increasingly about the individual. And when you look at other cultures, they still have more of a sense of community, like you do what's best for your community, you do what's best for your family, you do what's best for your church. And when we look at the scriptures, more of that communal focus is really what's emphasized. You know, the kingdom of God isn't about an individual, it's about God's people. And while you're right, like fighting for some rights is not a bad thing. The emphasis on it all being about me and God wanting me to have the fullness of my rights instead of, as Jesus showed, he laid down himself, he made himself nothing so that God might be glorified through him and out of love. Like we've completely, I think, lost that perspective, even within the American church.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think we have to be careful because we can really fall into this trap. We can take something that is good, you know, right. And then without the proper context, you know, I mean, if it focuses too much on the individual like that, then we can kind of lose sight of something that is bigger. And that's why, you know, in the book, I really try to emphasize you know, what is God doing in the church? You know, again, what is that, the core perspective? How does God want the church to be a witness to the world? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, what I feel like it just really comes back down again and again and again to the example of Jesus. You know, yeah. Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus's example is what causes the disciples to love one another. Mm-hmm. His sacrifice is seen as the epitome of his example of love. And the point is, you know, the disciples can love because he loved them first. And then I think you really have to have that context. When you have that context, then we can talk about things like rights and leadership. But if those are the ones that are first, I think it just can be harmful to our own spirits, as you mentioned that as part of the emphasis.
0: Yeah, and harmful to the family of God. So what you're really saying is the primary issue is love. The primary issue is a surrendered heart to the Lordship of Christ. And once we have that primary issue down, which is really a gospel issue, now we have the right posture and perspective to start working through the application of women and men in the context of ministry and the family. So I love to make this practical for people. And in your book, you said, I'm not going to tell you like what I think as far as women in ministry or women in the home. You said, I have some of my own ideas. And you're welcome to share those. People would love to hear them. But I'm even more concerned about what is the practical of getting this bigger message? Like, how should it change practically how I operate in my home or how I operate in ministry?
1: Well, I think one thing would be as we're thinking about the sort of the relational perspective, a big thing would be you know, in my home, how can I build up? And you know, how can I, I edify my husband or the husband? You know, how can I do this, you know, for my wife? And I think maybe one practical aspect is I think a lot of times, you know, what comes up with a complementary perspective is you know, if the husband is, you know, the head of the household, you know, well, does that mean king? You know I mean, does that yeah. mean you know, what he says goes, he gets to make all the decisions? And I would say, well, in a complementary perspective, if we are looking at this idea that, you know, Jesus takes these, you know, values and he, in a sense kind of sort of turns them upside down when he says in Matthew. If you want to be great, you have to be the servant, you have to be the slave. Well, then, to me, that does not fit with an idea of, you know, the husband being, in a sense, being king and ruler of this house. Yeah. So, you know, I think sometimes there's a tendency, OK, well, here's the complementary position. And, well, this must be what it means. I would say that if, you know, if a husband in a complementary home is saying like, well, no, this is my, you know, God has given me this authority. Well, no, it's not this you know, sort of blanket authority, it is a, you know, what I mean, it would mm-hmm. have to follow the example of Jesus, who is willing to sacrifice, you know, and suffer. And mm-hmm. if someone says this is what it is, then I would say that's not, <laughs> you know, that that's not following that. What I might say to, you know, an egalitarian, you know, marriage if they're saying, well, the whole point is, you know, we're sort of equal and mutual shared, you know, decision making in this, but I would sort of ask the question, it's like, but then, you know, what are the differences between, you know, men and women? Is there maybe something that, you know, we can't just assume, I can't assume that my husband is like me and I don't want my husband to assume that I'm like him. And maybe it's not necessarily a threatening thing to say that there are differences uh, between men and women that kind of go beyond the biological and to really kind of think about, you know, and that, and sometimes, you know, people might be hesitant to because sometimes qualities that are often associated with women are seen as kind of being weaker qualities, but to really not be afraid to ask what might that look like? You know, what are the differences there?
0: Yeah, I would love to follow up on both of the examples that you gave right there. So let's start with what you said about those of you who have more of a complementarian perspective, both in the home and in the church. You know, people will say a complementarian theology sets women up for abuse It sets women up to be ignored, to feel like they don't have a voice. And again, that can be true in both the church and home settings. So what I hear you saying is the highest ethic is love. And the highest ethic of a leader is that the people that he's leading would flourish. So even if that theology of male leadership would be right, if it's not exercised in a way that is Sacrificially causing the people that you're leading to flourish. It's unbiblical. Is that kind of what you're saying there?
1: Yeah, I would say that there's something wrong with that I mean Mm -hmm. because I, I do think just like you know, the gospel was intended for us to find true life in Christ And so if there is something in here that is making women feel, you know Unheard unvalued if it's leading to abuse then there is something wrong you know, in mm-hmm. this, and to be able to look at it, because I think one of the things that becomes really important is for us to be able to be self-critical. Okay, yeah. so I'm not saying for a complementarian you necessarily have to give up being complementarian, but it doesn't mean that you can't look at what yeah. you're doing and say mm-hmm. that maybe there's something in that that is not, you know, that that's not quite right. And here's one thing that I bring up in the book is that a lot of times complementarians and egalitarians too, just you know, Christians in general, we'll use the term servant leadership, and I think that's a good term, but I think there are some, sometimes some things in terms of the way it works out that I think might be a little bit problematic because often when I hear people talk about servant leadership, it's kind of seen as the main point is the leadership, but I'll be Mm. like a servant. You know what I mean? And so it's kind of this modifier. And then it often kind of seems practically worked out in terms of, you know, no, I have to make sure I consider you in this. But when you look at, what scripture talks about it. The idea of servant leadership, servant is not a modifier to leadership. Servant is the opposite of leadership. And it's kind of a paradox. Mm -hmm. So that's why Jesus might say that, you know, if you want to be, you know, the Gentiles might lord it over you, but you are called to be a servant. If you look at the Greco-Roman hierarchical scale, then, you know, the leaders would be here, servants would be at the bottom. And so what you actually have is a paradox. Mm -hmm. You know, how can you be both? And also, if you look at this idea of the servant slave, the servant slave is someone who, in a sense, has no identity, you know, no status. And then I think we'd have to ask our leaders, you know, being, you know, is this something where you're willing to have, in a sense, consider yourself as having no status, like no identity in that regard. And so that's, I think, would be one in which I might say, you know, we have to think about, you know, if you hold a complementarian position... Are you still considering this?
0: Yeah, I'm thinking of all the men I've had a chance to interact with, even in the last few years, who have been in positions of leadership. And when I've seen them do things like one pastor, our flight got in like really late. We were coming to speak at his church and we got rerouted, and he drove in the middle of the night, three hours to pick us up at the airport. He could have sent somebody else. But that choice just impressed me so much. It showed a heart. Like last week, seeing a man, a Christian man who owns a, a, just a business, not a religious business, but I, I was watching him like fold chairs and put things away and pick up trash. And I'm like, wow, like that speaks a lot. And those examples, when you see men in the home, in the workplace, in the church, like say leadership actually means being the servant and it means right. making sure that everyone around me is flourishing. Right. That is such a beautiful thing. The so the point
1: is for the people to do right. this.
0: You know what I might say, Michelle, to that is that's not optional. You know, that's not just a call for some leaders or some husbands. Like if mm-hmm. you really feel like God is giving you this mantle of leadership, that is a requirement that you even more than anyone else are laying down your rights in order to have the people around you flourish. And if that were to happen, man, we'd have very different churches and very different homes and a very different culture.
1: I think so. That changes the dynamic of everything.
0: Yeah, it sure does. So let's switch to the other side. The point that you made about egalitarians that you really need to ponder, is there a difference between men and women besides the biological? And this is something that I've thought about often because I don't want to make an extreme statement, but I think it's true. When we completely embrace egalitarianism, it paves the way for transgenderism. Because if there's nothing spiritually significant in male and female, then male and female don't matter. And, you know, the scripture is very clear that God is revealing something unique about himself in creating male and female. And so, I really think we're running the risk of not clinging to an important part of God's revelation and creation. So what are your thoughts related to that?
1: Yeah, I just so agree with you in that. And the more I study scripture, the more I see on the one hand how important Genesis is. If you look at the creation, you know, in Genesis 1, you have, you know, male and female are created at the end of Genesis 1. But then starting in Genesis 2, you have more of the distinctions coming, like Adam is created first and, and then Eve. Now, there's a lot of discussion. What does that mean? What is that significance? What I want to point out now is simply that it is significant. There are other ancient creation stories, you know, Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern creation stories. And some of the stories, the men and women are created together. You know, they're created at the same time. So I think it's very significant that they are created differently that Eve is created from Adam. And here's the thing that I think it's overlooked a lot in terms of, you know, the gender debate, because the debate tends to be like, well, Adam created first, does that mean he has authority? What's the importance of this? But when you look at Genesis, you know, at, at the second chapter of Genesis 2.24, the point of that is they are to have a one flesh union. So what you have is there, you know, really the explicit aspect of Genesis is for their unity. And kind of like in particular, you know, what you have here. So there is, I mean, I think maybe a term to use might be something like asymmetry. You know, so asymmetry right now is kind of a neutral term. It just means that they are different. You know what I mean? They're, they're not, you know, alike in this regard. And so I think part of our conversation, well, what will that difference, you know, look like? And when you go through Genesis, one of the things that you see is, you know, Adam is is told that, you know, Eve is, you know, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. So he, he says that. And then the point is, you know, Adam and his kind of charged for this, you know, one flesh unity. Of course, as we know, in as Genesis goes on, it's this tragedy, right? Because, you know, they do what God doesn't want them to do. And so, you know, they fall into transgression, then God punishes them. But what is so interesting at the end is, you know, here when Eve is created, Adam sort of gives this like sort of rapturous thing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, that he talks about her. And then he names her Eve. And then by the end, when God says, you know, what have you done, Adam? You know, why did you do this? Now he's confronted with what happened. You know, what Adam says is, oh, the woman you gave me yeah. made me do this. So she's no longer Eve. She's the woman, you know, and the woman mm-hmm. you gave me. So if Adam's point was he was to, you know, there's supposed to be this unity between him and this woman who's created from him. Now, by the end, she's objectified. Mm-hmm. He hasn't done this. He's like, you might say kind of like throws her under the bus like mm-hmm. that. And then so then when you get to Ephesians 5, you know, and this is the big passage that, you know, creates so much controversy about, you know, Ephesians 5, our women do submit to their husbands. But when you look at what the husband is to do, you know, now mm-hmm. the husband being in Christ, because this is compared to Christ in the church, now you kind of have this fulfillment of, because Paul cites Genesis 2.24, the two will become one flesh. So really, when I look at that, I just think that that's a dimension that's been so overlooked, you know, in this, this idea that God created Adam and Eve to be separate and yet one. And that fell apart. But in Christ, you know, when Paul says, you know, the husband will love the wife like Christ loved the church. Now we get back to Genesis 224. So I think you're just absolutely right in terms of, you know, this need to. We have to really think about what are these differences and maybe they're not the ones we're used to talking about, but I think it's just really important for us to talk about them and not say like, well, you know, here's the way it's been defined. I don't agree with it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we'll say that we're equal without looking further into, well, maybe there is another way. Yeah. in which there differences, and they're really, really important.
0: Right. Like, what is the essence of male and female? Not mm-hmm. the hobbies or the, the common personality traits and the things that we may or may not fit into a category.
1: Mm-hmm. And so when you're looking at Genesis, you know, how is Eve portrayed? How does Adam portrayed? And then both before and then, you know, after the fall for that. Yeah. Um, you know, and I had a, a colleague, he, he says, I don't know if I can say that as well as he does, but he, he talks about the whole idea is that, it's important to have men and women together, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, even as we're defining masculinity and femininity, So, sort in of, a man in history, he says, like, sort of a man can't be fully a man unless, <laughs> you know, I mean, unless there's a woman It doesn't necessarily have to be in marriage, you know, what I right. mean, but a woman can't be fully woman unless, you know, there are men. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be in marriage, but it's somehow maybe in the relating to one another, admitting that I think there are differences which is both kind of beautiful, but also challenging, right? right? Because if there are differences, we're not going to completely understand one another, which means among other things, we have to learn how to love one another, to have grace, mm-hmm. to be able to not necessarily see our point of view as you know being the main point of view. So how do we really become one? You know, Again, not just in marriage, but in the church when we are, when are different in that way. And I think that takes a bit of self-sacrifice. Because you kind of have to sacrifice your own sense of like, you know, my world, you know, my point of view is the way of looking, you know, at things. Mm. And if you don't understand why I do the things the way I do or what is important to me, then there's something wrong with you. You know, what's important to me should be important to you.
0: Yeah. And you said not necessarily just in marriage. And I would heartily agree with that. Like the primary relationship between men and women in the body of Christ is sibling, brother, sister. And mm-hmm. that's something that is often neglected. Yeah. So, Michelle, you kind of reflected a little bit on what you saw in Adam in Genesis and maybe an aspect of masculinity that we're missing. As you reflected on Eve in Genesis, what did you learn about women, maybe the essence of what it is to be yeah. female?
1: Well, one thing I would say is that, um, you know, one, Eve is – you know, definitely connected with Adam. Mm -hmm. So there is a strong connection between, you know, and Eve and Adam and Eve wanting to be connected with Adam. Eve is, if we're we're talking about sort of what happens here, Eve is taken from Adam. She becomes a separate, you know, a separate being. But then the one slash unit is going to be, again, this sort of unity between the two of them, but Eve as a separate being. So there's not like this merging together, you know, into sort of like one creature. So I think for Eve, there is sort of this strong pull of wanting to, you know, Mm -hmm. of wanting that. I would also say that with Eve, that she was also given this sort of this charge to co-rule, you know, in this sense. And so she has her own responsibilities in this regard. She is the one who is, you know, sort of Adam is the one who's given the command, but she is in a sense is given that too. So there is kind of this sort of both and aspect to Eve. Part of it is she wants to be, you know, with Adam, you know, but at the same time, she is in a sense a separate, you know, co-ruler with him in terms of what God has done. So I think, you know, sometimes there's a tendency to kind of maybe prioritize one of the other mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, but Eve does, there is both, there is both this relational aspect and there is a sort of co-ruling working aspect. And she is to be a, you know, strong and capable, you know, co-ruler with Adam.
0: Right. So where we, as women sometimes might get this wrong, we either become codependent where, our whole life is wrapped up in our husband, and we don't have a sense of our own stewardship before the Lord, or we become completely mm-hmm. independent. This is what God's given me to do, and it's taking me away from a healthy mm-hmm. interdependence in marriage and in the mm-hmm. family of God. That there's this tension that women mm-hmm. are always walking. And again, I think, I think so. that's a healthier perspective than the roles of, you know, we talk about women in the home, women in the workplace. Like, again, The roles are more obvious, but I think it's the underlying spirit and tension of how we walk out those roles that is even more significant.
1: Yeah, I think so. And that's why I think sort of being able to look at that scripture from this viewpoint more than roles kind of helps us see that because so much of scripture, there is a tension. Mm -hmm. And so here the tension is, you know, sort of like, you know, woman is different, but woman is kind of the same, you know, in that regard, too. And so that's why I do think it's important to be thinking about this larger perspective. You know, what is God doing in the world? What is God's plan for the church? What was God's desire for, you know, male and female? And how does this, you know, work out in the church? And to be open to different ideas, because I think what happens is sometimes if we come with these preset ideas, once I define what my role is, you know, once I say whether what I think in terms of, you know, these authorities, leadership in that regard, then, you know, that's kind of the main point. And but as you kind of mentioned, it does change our perspective. And as we think about this, we're holistic people, we relate to one another, you know, we've got hopes and dreams and fears and insecurities, you know, and all that it's I'm not just someone who works, okay, Mm -hmm. and fills a role. And I think there's so much in, you know, the relationship between men and women, what you kind of see in Genesis and throughout scripture, that I just really think there's just a richness there Mm -hmm. that we need to explore. And if I can add to what you talked about, you know, why this is, you know, so important. When you get to Revelation, you know, what is the final image of, you know, Christ and the church? It's the bride and the bridegroom, you know, or even in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh, you know what I mean? And is Yahweh's wife. And so this idea of, you know, male, female becomes, you know, there's something in there too, that Mm -hmm. helps us understand, I could say, both our relationships and our relationship sort of corporately with God, which I think we definitely say is cannot be reduced to something like here's a role.
0: Well, what did you think? I'll tell you, I think Michelle has done a really great job in highlighting some of the things that I think we're missing when it comes to this topic and conversation. Having a kingdom perspective is so important when we're looking at how God wants us to live out what he has called us to. If you'd like to grab a copy of Michelle's book, which I highly recommend, it's called Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian, and you can find the link to it in our show notes. Along with the links to two blog posts, I think will relate well to this topic. Hey, thanks for listening. And thank you for faithfully supporting Java with Julie. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, this is a listener supported podcast. And I'm so grateful for all of you who partner with us in our mission to help people reclaim God's design for sexuality. Well, that's all I have for now. I'll see you next time on Java with Julie.